we're in this series called Welcome Home, and we're really beginning this year with intention. You know, there's something about the turning of our calendar from one year to the next where it's only one digit, but sometimes it feel like, feels like there's just a world of possibility in front of us. And we realize in this time of year the, the supreme power our actions have, that we actually can make choices that change the trajectory of our future. A couple years ago, I stumbled on a documentary while I was surfing through Netflix, trying to find something to watch. And the, the, the documentary followed the life of a man named Maurice Claret. He was a, a football player at Ohio State University, and he had just loads of potential. But he made a series of destructive choices, and he found himself on the outside and unable to fulfill the dreams he'd been working for his whole life. And the documentary ends with Claret standing in a prison in front of a bunch of prisoners, talking about the power of our choices. And he said these words. He said, show me your friends, and I'll show you your future. And the words just hung there in the air. You could see even the cameras could capture the the power of that moment, and those words have stuck with me. As I think about us beginning a new year as individuals and as a church, the people that we allow into our lives— will have a massive impact on who we become in the future. And I was reminded of this even in my own life. Uh, A few years ago, more than I'd like to admit, I graduated from seminary. Shows a cheesy photo to show you today. And and near the end of my seminary journey, I was required to take a class called practicum because they wanted to make sure that that while we'd been in seminary, we didn't just learn ideas about God and spend time in the original languages of the Bible and Hebrew and in Greek. They wanted to make sure we'd had tangible ministry experience. And so part of the practicum class was you had to assemble an advisory board in your ministry context where you were serving, and these men and women who were with you in ministry would give you feedback so that you could become the leader, the best leader that God intended for you to be. I assembled my advisory board. We had our first meeting. I can remember it was a great meeting. We finished, and one of the men pulled me aside after the meeting was over, and he said, I don't think I can serve on this board. I said, why not? It was a great meeting, and you said you could help. And he said, yeah, I just, I have this concern that I think is going to keep me from helping you. I said, what is it? He said, I don't think you are open to feedback, especially from people who are older than you and with whom you don't agree. He said, and I fit both of those categories. He said, I don't think I can be on your board. He said, at the end of the day, I just don't think you're teachable. And it was a really hard word. Went from a great meeting to a terrible meeting like that. And as I chewed on what that man told me, there was a lot of truth in it. I wasn't nearly as open or humble or teachable as I thought. I had a huge blind spot. And I would have kept going through life if he hadn't had the courage and if he wasn't my friend enough to tell me that. And I'll tell you the rest of the story later on in the sermon. But that story is the launching point for our sermon today. Because as we talk about this new series about being welcomed home, we have to learn something important that Proverbs teaches us. Better is open rebuke than hidden love. Faithful are the wounds of a friend and profuse are the kisses of an enemy. If our friends really do show us our future, then we need to make certain 
that we're building those friendships in an intentional way. We started this series called Welcome Home last week, and we looked at the story of this guy named the prodigal son who wasn't a great friend. He was actually a terrible son. And yet he experienced the love and grace and mercy of his father. We said last week that we want to create a place where people are welcomed home. We want to create a place in this space on Sundays and at other times where people who are far from God, who have made destructive choices, who've gone the wrong way, can be welcomed home with the same kind of love and mercy and grace that we have. If you missed the message, I'd really encourage you to go back and watch it. Not because I preached it, but because I think it's an important message for us as a church in this season and for the future. But today, our central idea kind of builds on that one. And our big idea today is this. As a church, we want to invite people into spaces where they can be surrounded by authentic community. As a church, we want to invite people into spaces where they can be surrounded by authentic community, where they can have the kinds of friendships that lead them to the future that God has for them. And today, we're going to be in a very different place in the scriptures than we've been in in a while. We're going to be in the book of Exodus. Exodus is near the beginning of the Bible. It's the second book of the Bible. Many of you know the stories of this book because you've watched movies with Charlton Heston in them. There are no apes in this sermon, just for those of you who are wondering. But in these two passages from Exodus, we're going to look at a couple different experiences a man named Moses had that reveal the kind of community that God used to make him the man God had created him to be. And today, the message is really built around four questions that this text exposes for us. If you walked in with a bulletin today, in your bulletin is a handout that you can follow along with a sermon with. And a lot of times, the sermon is built around points. And at the end, on the bottom, are some discussion questions. But today, I really kind of push the questions up, and the whole sermon is built around questions because I want you to really lean into these questions. They're ones that God has been using to speak into my life. And after the first service, somebody said, why'd you write a sermon for me? I said, no, I wrote a sermon for myself, and we just have a lot in common. But the four questions we're going to look at today come from this text, and they really challenge us. And here's the first question. Where do I need to apply what I've heard God speak to me? I don't know about you, but one of the desires I have for 2017 is I want, to, I want to hear from God this year. I want God to speak to me. And this question about applying that really begins with this moment where we discover Moses in Exodus 17. Here's what the passage says. Then Amalek, and just pause, Amalek is a nation that was in the area. Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, choose for us men and go out and fight Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. Now, before we move on to the next slide, let's key in on this last sentence. Moses says, I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God on my hand. I believe I have a staff in the room today. Our resident Moses lookalike, Josh, is bringing it to me. I actually called him Moses in the first service, no joke. Um, so... What you need to know about Moses is that he has this staff that's a part of his story from the very beginning. When he, he goes to see the Pharaoh in the beginning of Exodus, he, he throws the staff down and the staff becomes a snake. When the people are delivered from captivity and they arrive at the Red Sea, God calls Moses to raise his hands up. 
And as he raises his hands up in dependence on God, God parts the Red Sea and millions of people pass through that sea on dry ground. And so as they're prepared to go to war against Amalek, who's been opposing them for some time, Moses says to Joshua, you go fight the battle in the valley, you lead the people, and I will stand on the hill, and I will hold up my staff. And for those of us who are 21st century people, we don't carry staffs like this, much less hold them up. But in this day of Exodus, if you held up a staff like that, it was a sign that you were depending on God. And Moses had been called at the Red Sea to not put his trust in himself or his leaders or their abilities, but to instead put his trust in God. And so when the opportunity came again and things could have gone either way, he said, I'm going to trust in and depend on God for God to deliver me. I'm going to continue to apply and be obedient to what God has taught me. Now, I said earlier, one of my desires for 2017 is for God to speak to me. And I think for many of you, it's for God to speak to you as well. You have things that you want to hear from God about. You have prayers that you're praying and desires that you have, and you want to hear from God. And one of the, one of the quotes that really formed up and helped me understand how God speaks came from a man named Henry Blackaby in his book, Experiencing God. Blackaby says, God speaks to us in four ways. Prayer, the scriptures, circumstances, and other people. In our lives, we tend to hear God through these four channels. Sometimes we open the Bible up and we know that we've read that passage before, but somewhere in the night, God snuck in your house and added a line in the Bible, you know? Like, that wasn't there yesterday. Where did that, where did that come from? And God speaks to us through the scriptures or God speaks to us through our circumstances. It just seems like God's orchestrating events to lead us in a direction. Or we talk to somebody about something that we're really struggling with and it's as if they stop being our friend for a second and their mouth is moving and it's like the voice of God in our lives. Or, or, or through prayer, we just get a strong sense as we're talking to God that, that he wants us to do something or this is how he's working. And, and, and as we look at the new year, many of us want more of that. We want to hear from God again. But here's the challenge that God placed before me. He said, Scott, sometimes you want more revelation when I'm interested in greater application. Sometimes we want God to speak more stuff when God has said, I would really rather you get on applying the stuff I've already told you and not tell you more stuff that you're probably not going to apply either. Like sometimes I wonder like if God's going, why should I tell you more? You're not going to be trustworthy with it. And, and God really birthed this question for me. And I'm just going to, this started with me, this question. Am I worthy of further revelation when I haven't been a good steward of what God's already spoken? Like, why should God tell me more in 2017 when there are things he told me in 2016 that I didn't do? People come to me and say, Scott, I really want to know what God's will is in my life. And I go, well, if you open the Bible, there's enough that's already clear to take you a whole lifetime to apply. And sometimes there's one place where you don't know God's will, but there's a bunch of other places where you do. And so if you get about applying God's will where you do know it, maybe it'll make what you don't know more clear. And you say, Scott, what does this have to do with community? 
Well, before Moses could be the kind of friend that he needed to be or have the friends that he needed to have, he had to be the kind of person who applied what God said. And the reason we hold him up as this great man of God, as imperfect as he was, was that when he heard God speak, many times in his life, he did what God said, even when it was hard or difficult or didn't make sense. Now, the good thing about the Bible is it tells us other times too. The times where he didn't. That's one reason I believe in the Bible. Just, just plain as, as a person, not as a pastor, but as a person. I believe in the Bible because it shows us the good moments and the bad moments of all of our heroes. There is no sanitized hero in the Bible. All of them have great flaws as the reminder that, guess what? God can use us flawed people too. And this is one of the reasons why, as a church, we've built our ministry around what we call sermon-based community groups. Because what you hear in here has to be taken out there and lived out. And many times, we hear a sermon on Sunday, and by Tuesday, we're sitting at lunch going, I think I was in church on Sunday. I know that the guy yelled about some stuff for a while. I don't remember any of it. Sometimes I have that experience, and I was the guy yelling, you know. (laughs) And so we said, why spend more time, more energy, more prayer in sermons if they're not going to be applied. And so we call people into community to make sure that they are diving into and applying this stuff to their lives because you just need to know my test of a sermon is not what happens in the lobby afterwards. It's what happens tomorrow and Tuesday and Thursday Someone goes, hey, great sermon, Pastor. Loved it. What would you like about it? I want to ask that sometimes, you know, but I I don't. Um, (laughs) Hey, you said last last week the sermon was good. Did you apply that one, you know? And the challenge for us is not did we hear something, but did we apply it? And that's where this text begins. The second question that this text unearths is who am I surrounded by? In my life, who am I surrounded by? Who is around me? Who has God put there to help me and for me to help? The passage continues. Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek. While Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. And while Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. So Moses is standing on top of the hill. He's holding his hands up. Israel wins. He lowers his hands. Israel loses. His hands get tired. Have you tried to hold something up like this for a long time? I thought about picking my least favorite staff member and just putting him over there, you know, and having him hold up the whole sermon, you know, but I'm nicer than that. But Moses' hands grew weary. They took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. And Aaron held up his hands, and Ur held up his hands, one on one side and one on the other side. And his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. See, Moses has the experience that many of us have. We begin applying and doing what God's called us to, and we get tired. Some of you have been doing what God's called you to do, and you're tired. You're a stay-at-home mom, and if you have one more blowout, you're going to lose your ever-loving mind. And go, God, these kids, you gave them to me, and I'm going to lose it. 
Or, or God provided a job for you, and in the beginning you were grateful for the paycheck, but now the boss and the coworkers, you're like, I'll do anything else, just, just get me out of here. Or God led you to Prescott, and it was great in the beginning, but things haven't gone like you've planned. And you're, you're tired, and your arms begin to drop. And that happened for Moses. And what was good is that Moses wasn't alone. In that moment, he was not alone. He had two men with him. The first man he had with him was a man named Aaron. Aaron was his brother. They've been through a lot together. I mean, when your brother murders somebody and you're still his friend, you're a good brother. And that was Aaron. He stuck with Moses, stood before the Pharaoh with him, saw that God deliver them from captivity. The other man's a man named Hur. For the record, Hur is a him. Hur is not a her. We don't know a lot about her, though. I did a lot of research on her this week. We know he was present here, and he's there at Mount Sinai when Moses goes to the Ten Commandments. We don't know who he's involved with. Some people think that he's the father of Caleb, who's a big character in the Old Testament. Some people think that he's the husband of Miriam, who's Moses and Aaron's sister. What we do know is that when Moses was in a moment of need and he was exhausted, they were there to step in and help him. And it's an important reminder for us that even leaders need to be surrounded. Some of us think that we need to be surrounded in the beginning when we're just getting up and we're growing and we're just getting started. But as we get older, we kind of graduate from our need to be surrounded. We need help in the beginning, become self-sufficient later. This story breaks that. That even leaders need to be surrounded. No matter what avenue or area you're a leader in, if you become isolated, you become dangerous. Leaders who aren't in community, who aren't held accountable, ultimately do dangerous things. I can't tell you how many friends I have who served, have served in churches where when the pastor started, he had great community and great friends and was accountable. But as he became successful, he traded in his friends for people who told him what he wanted to hear. I grew up in Las Vegas. This is the story of Mike Tyson. If you followed the the fall of Mike Tyson, he lost over $400 million. Went bankrupt after making $400 million. And the men who were in his life when he was 17 and 18, before he won the heavyweight title at 19, they were the people who told him the truth. And when he hit it big, he traded those friends away for a posse of yes men. And he lost four hundred million dollars because he wasn't surrounded. Even Jesus was surrounded. I mean, he's Jesus. Why does he need friends? But he did. He chose 12 men to do life with, even though he knew they'd be imperfect. He knew that Peter would betray him. He knew they would fall asleep. He knew they wouldn't get it. And yet he chose them. I mean, He had a friend that he called Satan. If your friends are causing you drama, talk to Jesus about it. He can, you know, give you a shoulder to cry on. He knows. We need people. And here's why we need people. Because community is like a retirement account. You invest in it when you don't need it. So the account is full when you do. And some of us have had moments where we needed people, but we had no one to call because we hadn't built those friendships before. When the wheels fall off, 
when you get a call from your doctor, when your family starts falling apart, you can't build a call list then. No, you have to pick up the phone and call the call list you built when you didn't need it. You have to choose to be proactive and future-oriented. And community is one thing that sometimes we feel like we can get away without investing in. I don't have time for friends. I don't have time for community. Well, guess what? If you don't have time now, you won't have people later. And you have to choose to invest when you think you don't need people. So they'll be there when you do. So my question is, who are you surrounded by? Who are the people who are around you, like Aaron and her, that if you were to get tired, if you were to hit a wall, if things were to fall apart? Because you know this, the most significant events of 2017, I have no idea what they are, and neither do you. In January of 2018, on the 15th, when you look back at 2017, all the most significant moments, you're not going to see them coming. You can't plan for the biggest moments in your life. But you can have people there so that you are not alone when they do come. Here's the third question. Am I submitted to those around me? So you've got to be surrounded, but there's a difference between being surrounded and being submitted. And we learn this in the next story, just a few verses later. After he wins this battle, Moses' father-in-law comes to visit, a man named Jethro. And like when your family visits, they meddle. And so Moses is here doing his job, and his father-in-law starts meddling in his life. The next day, Moses sat to judge the people, and the people stood around Moses from morning till evening. When Moses' father-in-law saw all that he was doing for the people, he said, What is it that you're doing for the people? Why do you sit alone? And all the people stand around you from morning till evening. And Moses said to his father-in-law, a man named Jethro, Because the people came to me to inquire of God when they have a dispute, they come to me and I decide between one person and another. And I make them know the statutes of God and his laws. And Jethro said to him, what you're doing is not good. You and the people will certainly wear yourselves out for this thing is too heavy for you and you're not able to do it alone. Now obey my voice and I will give you advice and God will be with you. You shall represent the people before God, bring their cases to God, and warn them about the statutes and the laws, and make them know the way in which they must walk what they must do. Moreover, look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe, and place such men over people as chiefs of thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens, and let them judge the people at all times." Every great matter they shall bring to you, but any small matter they shall decide themselves. So it'll be easier for you, and they'll bear the burden with you. If you do this, God will direct you, and you'll be able to endure, and all this people will be able to go about in peace. So this guy named Jethro, who is this guy? Well, he's the father of Moses' wife, Zipporah. And Moses meets him when he's in the wilderness after fleeing Egypt when he killed an Egyptian. And, and before Moses goes back to Egypt for God to use him to deliver the people, Moses sends his wife and his sons back home so they're not subjected to slavery. But now that they're free, 
Jethro brings them for a reunion, and Jethro offers sacrifices to God, announcing him as the one true God. And as he's hanging around, Jethro notices something that's wrong. He says, Moses, you're going to get burned out. You're going to frustrate yourself. This is not good. And he shares some incredible wisdom. He has incredible insights. And here's the thing. Jethro had wisdom to share, but Moses had to listen. This is true in our own lives. There's people who are surrounding us who have wisdom and insight that we can't see, who know things that we don't know, who observe things that we don't. And that wisdom stays with them and doesn't help us if we're not open to listen, if we're not submitted to listen. Here's a question for you this week, something you do with the people around you. What if you asked the three to five people you're closest to, how open am I to feedback? it might be an uncomfortable conversation. You might not like what you hear. But this is the difference between being surrounded by people and being submitted to them in a way that actually changes your life. Because they may know things you need to know, but they may not be telling you because they know you're not going to hear it. Last week, I had a friend of mine who sent me a text after my sermon last Sunday, which was about the prodigal son and talked a lot about his older brother. And this guy said, hey, Scott, how do you tell the truth without being the older brother? Fantastic question. Now, first of all, it shows self-awareness. This person realizes that they could be the older brother and they don't want to be. But it it unearthed for me a lot. I started thinking about things this week and it, it brought up a word that's a loaded word in church. It's the word accountability. This is a loaded word. And by loaded, I mean it's a word that carries a lot of emotional baggage with it. Because some of us have been on the receiving end of accountability that hasn't gone well. We've had people try to hold us accountable, and accountability was just code for shaming, judgment, and condemnation. I'm going to hold you accountable. No, you're not. And somebody begins to try to make us live the life they think we should live or shape up in the ways they think we should shape up. And when I say we, I mean me. There were years where I just stopped using this word because all my experiences of it were negative. And I learned something about why that was. See, accountability cannot be imposed. It can only be invited. I can't tell you, guess what? I'm going to hold you accountable. Because you're going to say, no, you're not. You're not God. Who made you God? But if I go to you and say, hey, look, this is something I want to do. This is something I want to change. Here's where I need help. Would you call me on Friday at 3? That way I have the courage to do it Friday at 4. Or, hey, I want to do this every morning, so would you send me a text every day at 7 a.m. for the next two weeks so that I will have some sort of positive reinforcement or some sort of consequence or some type of encouragement? See, accountability that's invited goes very differently than accountability that's imposed. I had lunch one day with a friend of mine in Phoenix at one of my favorite spots. I miss it terribly. It's called Chino Bandito. It's Mexican and Chinese together. And it's a beautiful thing. You walk out five pounds heavier, but it's a beautiful thing. And we were back in the back enjoying our jade red chicken quesadillas and 
jerk chicken fried rice and the most amazing snickerdoodles. Oh, it's just great. My friend Sean was with me, and he's a, he has a national ministry to youth and college students. And right around this time, a very public, prominent pastor had a moral failure. It was all over the news, national news, newspapers, social media. It was everywhere. And I was like, I can't believe this guy would do that. And doesn't he have community in his life? Doesn't he have elders and a board? And I mean, how could they let this get so bad? And I was kind of ranting about it. And Sean's eating his food, just kind of chewing. And I stopped my rant. And he goes, would you be open to another perspective? I said, sure. He goes, because my wife's in a small group with his wife. And I rethought all the things I'd said before. And he's like, Scott, you would not believe the accountability structure they had around that pastor. His whole board knew this was his problem. They said he couldn't go anywhere alone. He traveled with someone wherever he went, a different person every time, and they stayed in his hotel room. They said he, he had all of his cell phone and his email public to his team. Text messages, phone calls, emails. It was all visible. He said, Scott, if you don't want to be held accountable, you won't be held accountable no matter how much structure you have around you. Accountability is a heart thing, and you can't force it. And that's stuck with me to this day. See, you're surrounded by people right now, but that doesn't mean they're your friends. You're surrounded by people, some of you, because you're part of one of our community groups. But if you're not submitted to those people and open to them and letting them in, they'll just be people there next to you not people who are in your life. You have to let them in. So my friend, I said, hey, I think it comes down to a few things. If you want to tell somebody the truth, it has to be the right person. Because let's be honest, sometimes when people tell us things, it's the wrong person. Because we're like, you don't have my best interest in heart. Or you betrayed me. It has to be the right motive. You know, because sometimes people want to tell us the truth, but it's about them, not us. You know? They want to just get that off their chest. And it has to be the right time. My wife and I have a running joke. If she has a critique for my sermon, she doesn't give it to me on Sunday afternoon at 1 o'clock because I'm not going to hear it. It's way too fresh. Now, lunch on Monday at 1 o'clock, I could do because it's the right time. If I have something to tell her at 8.45 when she's kicking me out of bed because we're 30 minutes past her bedtime, not a good time to have a hard conversation but there's a different time. And if we're going to be submitted, we have to get this right because we want a win-win. If accountability is a win for one person and a loss for the other, it's a loss. And if we're going to be submitted, it has to be a win-win. And it was a win-win for Jethro and Moses heard it and it changed him. Here's the last question. How can I increase my commitment to authentic community? In the new year, how can I move from this being a good idea to something I'm actually committed to? Exodus, this passage in Exodus 18, ends with this word. Moses listened to the voice of his father-in-law, and he did all that he had said. Now, here's the thing. As you read these stories in the Bible, what you have to know is that as they were being written, they didn't have to end the way they did. We know the whole story, so it seems like it's just goes that way. But their lives were like our lives. They had choices. And the way the stories in the Bible ended, they didn't have to end that way because humans could have made different choices. And Moses chose to listen to his father-in-law and do what he said. 
Why did he do that? Well, I think one of the reasons he did was because of history. He'd been friends with Jethro for 40 years. He'd known this man for over 40 years. Now, I haven't even lived 40 years. I don't even have friends who've been in my life for 40 years. They had a history together, and that history had created trust. And so when Jethro spoke in his life, he listened. And it teaches us something, that authentic community never happens without intentionality. If you want to have that kind of friendship where you know beyond a shadow of a doubt that that person has your best in mind and you can listen to what they say, that's going to take intentionality. It doesn't happen like that. If you don't have it today, you probably won't have it by February 1st. But you could have it by January 15th of 2018. It's going to take intentionality. You're going to have to be intentional and allow it to happen because it doesn't happen by accident. When you have that kind of authentic community, you can be vulnerable. Moses exposed Jethro. He's like, why are you doing this? He goes, because I feel like I have to. And yeah, it's overwhelming, but who else is going to do it? And it's killing me, but I don't know anything else. He was honest with Jethro. He let him in. And many of us struggle to let people in in this context because if you've been part of church, you've likely been hurt. Right? And many of us hear about this sort of community and we go, that's great, that's your idealistic picture, oh pastor, but here in the real world, I've been hurt. Like you've been in one of those groups where they said, hey, you know what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas, what happens in our group stays in our group and then it didn't. Or you were vulnerable and shared, and instead of receiving love and mercy and grace, you received shame and judgment and condemnation. You opened up and let other people in, and what they brought was pain. And so your temptation is just to come on Sunday morning, just to show up and leave, to never really be known. Why? So that you don't get hurt again. But here's the thing you have to learn. If you prevent people from hurting you, you'll prevent people from loving you too. Like, you don't get one without the other. You don't get love without the risk of being hurt. You can't be vulnerable enough for people to know you without giving them the material to hurt you. That is the human condition. And so if you lock down and go, shields up, never going to get hurt again, then you're never going to be known enough for you to get what your heart most desperately wants. For you to get for what your heart most desperately wants, you have to expose yourself to something you may fear. And that's the place where I think some of us live. We know we could join a community group We know we could begin relationships. We know we could let people in. But we're afraid to risk. Some of us, we we make excuses. We go, hey, like, my, my spouse won't go. I'm married. They won't go. What do I do? You know, I would say to you, go. They're going to miss out on community. Why should you have to miss out on it too? You go, Scott, but I'm going to be the only one. Or not. Say, Scott, they're going to judge me for coming by myself. No, they're not. Because if they do, it's scott at prescottcornerstone.com. 
Just let me know. Just put it out there. We want to do everything we can to create a place where you can experience authentic community. And yes, it is scary. And I know what that is. Because every Sunday I step out here and I have this habit of telling these oddly vulnerable stories. Because I think you need to know that you're not the only one who struggles. And the temptation for me is to not tell those stories. Because then I don't get emails or comments. If I don't put myself out there, you can't hurt me. But if I don't put myself out there, you can't connect with me. And here's the thing. Let's go one more slide ahead to this picture. You see, when the father welcomes the son home, he gives the son a great gift. And this is the gift I've been given. And this is the gift you've been given if you're a follower of Jesus. You've been given the approval of the father. And your approval of me will never give me what I receive in Christ. So guess what? I can risk. I can share. Because you may hurt me, but you're never going to be able to take away what the Father gave me. And that's what I would say to you. If you're afraid to be vulnerable and share, if you're afraid to commit, the thing that you're worried about people taking away from you can never be eclipsed by what the Father's given you. He's already said you're loved, you're known, you're forgiven, you're His. And their approval is going to match that? No. But if you're living for their approval, not his, then yeah, you're always going to hold back. A couple next steps I want to put in front of you today. I would really encourage you to go home and take these questions to heart. I've given you a lot to chew on today. Probably more than I should have crammed in one sermon. But I'd encourage you to take time to really lean into these and reflect on them. Number two, I would really encourage you to today join one of our community groups. They're not perfect, I promise you. They're not like BFF Chia Pets where you pour water on them and in two weeks you're going to have your best friend. I can promise you one thing. I said if you've been involved in church for time, you're going to be hurt. If you stay, you're, you're probably going to get hurt. But you're probably going to get loved too. I'm probably going to hurt you and disappoint you because I have a tendency to do that. Just ask my wife. But until we're known, we can never be loved. So just a few things about our community groups before I wrap up. What are they like? Well, they meet during the week so that you're not just Sunday friends, you're real friends. They're located in homes and coffee shops and at our roster campus so that there's time and space to get into each other's lives more than you can in the lobby for a few minutes over coffee or hot chocolate. They're based around our sermons and they're application-oriented, so it's not about you learning and getting another lesson. It's about applying what you've already heard. Because many of us are over-educated and under-applied. Some of us could never hear a sermon again and we'd have enough to apply for the rest of our lives. So it's about applying what we've heard and putting it into practice. And then our groups are missional. They exist be- for something beyond themselves. They serve the community around them. They, they're not inward focused. They're externally focused. And so today, we've made it really easy for you to join these groups. All you need is your phone. If you pull your phone out and send a, t- a text message to 444-999 and text the word Cornerstone Groups, all one word, we'll follow up with you. So 
in the number where you put your number normally, you put 444-999 Cornerstone Groups and we'll follow up with you. It's like Jamie said, you can be here, but not be here. You can know people, but not really know people. This can be your home or it can become your home as you connect. Would you pray with me? God, I thank you so much that we can come into a space and not have to be perfect. I thank you so much that our relationship with you is not based upon our performance. Now, in the past, or in the future. God, we are imperfect, broken people. We're hypocrites. In so many places in our lives, we're saying one thing and doing another. There's a gap between our intentions and our actions, what we want and what we do. And God, this place that's supposed to be a place about love and grace and mercy and forgiveness, so many times has become a place of judgment and shame and condemnation and hurt. And there's people who aren't here today because they say the church is full of hypocrites. But God, we know that it is. There's just always room for more. And so we pray that you break our hearts for the places where we're not applying what it is that we know, where we're not yet the people that you intend for us to be. We confess that we've been far too busy sometimes and neglected the most important thing. God, we pray that this year would be the year where individually and collectively we take steps towards not only receiving the homecoming you've given us because of your love and mercy, but that we would give that away to others. God, far be it from us to hoard the greatest gift you've given us and think it was just for us when in fact it was for the world. Help us to be the people you long for us to be together, not alone. And we pray that you would use the people around us to make us more like Jesus. In your name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to the audio from Cornerstone Church in Prescott, Arizona. For more information, visit us online at www.prescottcornerstone.com. Dot com.